Hello, everybody, and welcome to our first episode of Murder in the North. I'm your co-host, Zach. And I'm Kelby. And today it's going to be actually Kelby that's going to be starting it off on our first episode. All right, so our sources this week for the case is Murderpedia, Rampage, Canadian Mass Murder, and Spree Killing by Lee Meller, the Legal Archive Society of Alberta, Red Deer Advocate, and CBC News. Our case takes place in 1959 in Stettler, Alberta, and our case is going to be about a man named Robert Raymond Cook. So Robert Raymond Cook was born on July 15, 1937 in Hannah, Alberta. Robert was the firstborn child to 18-year-old Josephine Cook and her husband 20-year-old Raymond Albert Cook. The marriage between Josephine and Raymond was described as turbulent, with Josephine constantly accusing Raymond of adultery, and to make matters worse, Josephine underwent many illnesses, and unfortunately in September of 1946, she died during a reparative surgery on a twisted bowel. So at nine years old, Robert had to grieve the loss of his mother. It was described that Robert and his father Raymond had a claustrophobic emotional bond, and in the summer of 1949, Raymond went on to wed Robert's school teacher, Daisy Mae Gasper. And in February of the year followed, 1950, the couple welcomed a baby boy and eventually went on to have four more children together. The family went on to relocate to a rural community in Stettler, Alberta. This move had a profound impact on 13-year-old Robert. It was said that Robert began showing signs of conduct disorder, which according to Google is a type of behavior disorder, and it's when a child has antisocial behavior. The person may disregard basic social standards and rules or may also be irresponsible. This eventually led Robert to begin hot-wiring cars and taking them on joyrides for the excitement and adventure. Robert also showed an interest in breaking enters, but rather stuck to hot-wiring vehicles. From this reckless behavior, Robert was sent to Bowdoin Reformatory, an institution which, when I looked it up, stated it was a medium security prison operated by Correctional Services Canada. Robert's father, Raymond, and stepmom, Daisy, were hopeful that this day at the reformatory would help Robert learn that what he did was wrong. However, this day at Bowdoin Reformatory did not help Robert, and between the ages of 13 to 21, Robert earned 19 separate convictions where he was then sent to Lethbridge Jail in Alberta and then to Stony Mountain Penitentiary in Manitoba. During his time in Stony Mountain Penitentiary, Robert took up boxing, which then landed him in Saskatchewan Penitentiary. So he went from the reformatory school to Lethbridge Jail to now Stony Mountain Penitentiary. But in 1959, Robert was granted pardon alongside 99 other, other nonviolent inmates to celebrate Queen Elizabeth's royal tour of Canada. And out of those 99 inmates, 60 were released back into the public, and Robert was one of those individuals. So did it say why he was like arrested the first time? Yeah, it said that he like was in there, like he was sent to the reformatory school because of his like hot wiring. Oh, okay. And then he was, like, boxing and everything, which sent him to Lethbridge Jail. Okay. Yeah, so he was boxing, and then that landed him in Saskatchewan Penitentiary. Um, so after being released from prison, Robert made his way back home to his father's and stepmom's home by taking a bus from the penitentiary with his prison friend Jimmy, 
The two supposedly went bar hopping and continued their journey by catching a greyhound to Edmonton, where Robert stayed in a hotel to sleep off his hangover. During this time, Jimmy left for his parents, leaving Robert alone. While Robert was staying at the hotel, Robert ended up stopping by a car dealership where he found a brand new white Chevrolet Impala convertible. Robert spoke to the salesman about potentially trading in a 1958 station wagon, which is his father's car, um, in exchange for the convertible, but left empty-handed and continued his trip to Stetler, where his mom or his stepmom and his father lives. Two days later, on Friday, June 26th, Robert returned back to Edmonton, but this time in his father's station wagon. Robert drove to another car dealership in hopes to trade in his father's vehicle for something fancier, but was unable to negotiate a deal with the salesman. After this unsuccessful trip, Robert went back to the dealership he went to the day before, where like the Chevy convertible in Powell was. But this time, Robert pretended he was his father, Raymond, as he had a record of steady work experience and had not been in jail previously. Robert ended up convincing the salesman into allowing Robert to test drive the Impala for $40 on the conditions that Robert was to return the Impala by 5 p.m. that night to fill up like necessary documentation. But Robert had no intentions of returning. 30 hours and 720 kilometers later, Robert Raymond Cook was driving through downtown Stetler when he was pulled over by Constable Alan Braddon. Robert was then brought to the RCMP detachment where Robert met with Sergeant Tom Broach. So it turned out the dealership called police on Robert as like, he didn't return the car, um, like he stated he would, so he could fill out like all the documentation so the car was seen as stolen. However, Robert pretended to be his father, so police assumed Robert's plan was to steal the car and not get caught. But Sergeant Tom Roach wanted to speak with Robert's father, Raymond, to let him know like, what had been going on, and that like Robert attempted to steal a car under his father's name. Sergeant Roach had difficulties trying to connect with Robert's father, um, but he didn't think much of it. At this point, Sergeant Roach began going through the items that were in the Impala Robert was caught in. Um, and he ended up finding two suitcases stuffed with PJs, a metal box containing Robert's younger sibling's birth certificates, Raymond's bank book, and Raymond's marriage license. Somewhat weird. Yeah, that's a bunch of random stuff that you would just have in a suitcase. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think PJs is, like, that weird. Because, like, his children, but... Yeah. But, like, their information and their documentation is, like, why would he have that? Anyways, uh, when Robert was questioned about like these items being in the car, Robert told the sergeant that his family had taken a trip to quote-unquote somewhere in British Columbia in hopes of purchasing a garage. Uh, Robert informed police that his father had instructed Robert to exchange his father's station wagon for the convertible Impala. Uh, since like Robert didn't have any ID, Raymond gave Robert his own. Robert continue telling police that there was no reason for concern and that his father would tell police exactly what Robert was telling him when they were back from their family trip. Police didn't really believe Robert and assumed he would be charged under false pretenses for doing what he did to the dealership and like posing as his father. Um, so Robert was held in a holding cell and while he was there, uh, Sergeant Roach drove to Robert's family home, which is only two blocks away from the police station but noted that there was, like, no signs of disturbance. But 
Sergeant Urge did not have like a settling feeling about what Robert told him and felt that something was actually wrong. So just after midnight, Sergeant Roach returned to the home with const with Constable Al Morrison. The two entered with their flashlights, which I'm not sure if like back then it was like allowed that you could just enter homes without a warrant. warrant. Yeah. I thought that was kind of weird. Like I don't That they just like kind of entered the house. Yeah. Yeah, that is a little weird. But, like, keep in mind, this was also, like, 1959. Yeah, so it could have been completely different then, as long as they had a reason to believe that they Something should was actually be going happening. in. Yeah. So, anyways, the two entered just after midnight um, with their flashlights, and the two noticed that the children, like, Robert's younger siblings' shoes, were all neatly under their beds, and that the sheets of the beds were removed from the mattresses. Police wondered why the family might have stripped their bedding and went barefoot, if they did go on a family trip, like Robert stated. But, like, when I read that, I thought maybe they had more than one pairs of shoes. Like, it's not that weird yeah. for shoes to be left. Oh, yeah. Bed, but I'm not sure. Um, but seeing that made police have, like, a worrisome feeling. So the next morning, like, keep in mind, they went at midnight. And now they're going back at 11 a.m. Um, along with five RCMP officers, which if you're not familiar with RCMP... Um, they're Canadian officers, and they're primarily responsible for enforcing federal laws throughout Canada, where police are, like, enforcing the criminal code and provincial legislation within each province or territory. Uh, so, as I mentioned, five RCMP officers arrived at the Cook's residence to further investigate, and what the officers found made them realize that they were dealing with a much bigger case than they first thought. The walls and the beds were covered in blood. Shards of a broken shotgun ammo were mixed with clumps of bones, brains, and hair. But among this, there were no bodies. How did they not see this when they went in? Well, it was dark. They only had their flashlight. But if there was blood on the walls, you think the flashlight would catch that? I don't know. This is what they said. So, police continued their search to like find Raymond, Daisy, and Robert's five other siblings, but had no luck. Um, but a half hour later, the officers continued their search into the family's garage at the back of the home. And the police noticed first that there were flattened cardboard boxes in place on the ground as though they were like tiled on a floor. Um, and beneath the cardboard, investigators discovered a second layer of wooden boards placed over top of a grease pit. And after pulling away the wooden boards, the investigators were in disbelief as they saw the bodies of Raymond and Daisy and their five children stacked on top of one another, surrounded by discarded clothing, bedding, used car parts, and other miscellaneous objects. Now I'm going to go into a bit of a detail about what exactly police noted and what they noticed. So this is a bit of a trigger warning if you don't want to hear that, just skip ahead. Investigators noticed that Raymond's chest had been blown open by a buckshot and that Daisy had been shot in the head with only fragments of her skull remaining. Um, I'm not going to go into detail about the children, um, but they were also brutally attacked and had suffered a fractured skull um, from the end of the shotgun that was used to murder Raymond. So after discovering this, the police officers went to work immediately to figure out what happened, who did this, etc. Uh, it was stated that both Raymond and Daisy had been shot in their bed first, and after murdering all seven family members, the killer then ruled each into the grease pit and then attempted to scrub the blood splattered walls but was unsuccessful. 
Pathologists believe this murder happened within the last 24 to 72 hours, placing the time of death between noon of Thursday, June 25th, and noon on Saturday, June 27th. However, on Friday, Raymond did not show up for work and the children also did not show up to school um, on this day, which seemed to indicate that the family had either uh, been murdered the previous evening or Friday morning. Further investigation revealed that friends of the Cooks had actually visited with the family up until 9 p.m. on the Thursday night of June 25th, and a witness claimed to see Raymond giving Robert a ride soon after this. Uh, to police, this seemed like an open and shut case. Uh, police believed Robert arrived at the family's home Friday night, where he then shot, beat, and murdered his, his family in hopes of stealing his father's station wagon to then purchase the Chevy Impala. But after being questioned, Robert had an explanation for everything. Uh, Robert told police he had gone a ride with a friend early Thursday, June 25th, arriving in Stettler at 1 p.m. Robert stated he loitered around town until 9 p.m. when his father Raymond picked him up. From there, the two went for a drink at a bar uh, where their conversation turned to the possibility of buying a garage in British Columbia. Raymond allegedly agreed with Robert and they parted ways. Robert returned to the family's home at 9.30 p.m. where both Robert and Raymond informed Daisy of their plan of purchasing a garage in B.C. Robert gave his, his father his blue prison-issued suit and approximately $4,000 in cash that he had hiding while in prison to help contribute to the purchase of the garage. Which, I don't know where you'd be hiding that kind of money in prison. Seriously, there's like nowhere, you would have nowhere to put it. Yeah, but that's, yeah, it's a lot of money. Um, and in return of, like, Robert giving Raymond this money and his prison issued jumpsuit, Raymond lent his car, wallet, ID, and car keys to Robert so he could exchange the station wagon for the Chevy Impala that he saw in Edmonton. Uh, once the exchange was supposed to be completed, Robert was to drive the convertible back to Stettler and wait for a phone call from his father with instructions to collect the rest of the family. Robert claimed that when he left the house for Edmonton, where the dealership was at 10.30 um, p.m., his father, stepmother, and siblings were alive and well. The following day, Robert successfully traded the vehicle and drove to Camrose, White Court, and then back to Camrose again. Um, and I did like a quick map on my phone. They're about three hours from each other. Like to get to Camrose to White Court, that's three hours and then to get back. Oh It'd be goodness. another, yeah. So yeah. like a six hour drive at least. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then Robert continued saying on Saturday he had been given a ticket for driving with an open bottle of alcohol in his car before making his way back to Stettler. At 7 p.m., he arrived to his family's home to find that his family, in fact, left without him. Robert went to tell police he lingered around for about an hour or so and drove downtown, where he then was stopped by Constable uh, Braddon. And after that whole explanation to the police, the police did not believe Robert. The next day, Robert was charged for his father's murder. Robert had then been sent to a psychiatrist for a 30-day period, and during this time, Robert was in a mental health facility, his family members were buried, and Robert was denied to go. And only nine days after the burial of his family, Robert escaped from the mental health hospital through a wire mesh window. Out of a wire mesh window? Yeah, it said he cut a hole in the window and he escaped. What did he cut a hole with if he was in a mental facility? He had an object and he like was able to kind of cut the wire. Yeah. 
So after he escaped, this commenced the largest manhunt in Alberta's history with 75 police officers, two hunting dogs, and uh, a spotter plane. Like they were searching the hillsides, farm fields around the area of the hospital. Police cautioned the public about picking up hitchhikers during this time. Because obviously like, that was like a little that bit more popular. popular then. Yeah. That same day, a car Robert had supposedly stolen was found crashed and rolled over, along with evidence of a break and enter at the town hall. Police brought in another spotter plane, and after discovering yet another stolen vehicle outside Bashaw, which is just like a, like a little city there, or like a, a little town. Yeah. Um, at this point, 60 soldiers from the Canadian Army, um, the Canadian Army were on Robert's trails in jeeps and helicopters. Police received a call from a farmer saying that his wife noticed a dark, shadowy figure lurking behind her barn. The police officers were met with a starved and unkept-looking Robert who surrendered to police. He was then sent to Fort Saskatchewan Jail. Between November 30th and December 10th, 1959, Robert was tried for the murder of his family. However, there was no clear evidence and all evidence obtained was circumstantial. The jury deliberated for an hour and a half before finding Robert guilty of capital murder. The judge sentenced 22-year-old Robert Raymond Cook to be hung on April 15, 1960. That was still a thing. Just wait. After this trial, Robert's defense team filed for an appeal and their request was granted and a second trial commenced in Edmonton on June 20, 1960 under Judge Harry Riley. And in the end, the jurors reached the same verdict. Robert's case was denied for a third trial, and on November 15, 1960, Robert Raymond Cook became the first man to be executed in Alberta since 1952, and also the last in province's history. Six decades later, one of Robert's defense lawyers, 92-year-old Judge McNaughton, still believes there was enough reasonable doubt that the outcome of his client should have been different, and he said, it's not the case of I'm sure he's innocent, it's that I'm not sure he's guilty. Several months before the killing happened, uh, Robert had been clubbed over the head with a lead pipe by another inmate when he was in jail for breaking and entering in car theft. Uh, this injury resulted in a severe concussion, and prisoners who knew Robert reported a personality change after this injury, saying he became fidgety and lost his temper easily. People believe that this could have caused Robert to become homicidal. Robert's lawyers tried to get Robert to plea to temporary insanity, as this would have helped Robert avoid the death penalty, but Robert insisted that he did not commit the crime and therefore denied this, which resulted in him getting capital punishment and being hung. So, like, he could have went out there and pretty much said that he did it, but pled insanity and he could have been still alive yeah i think like what this is saying is he like he could have pled to temper to temporary insanity and he would have got like more mental health like treatment oh okay. he, he probably like he would have still been in jail i would have assumed but he wouldn't have got like the sentence that he got but he was saying i didn't do this so like i'm not going to to agree to this because i didn't do it and robert continued like up until he was hung saying I didn't do this I couldn't have done it and he actually wrote a poem which I'm going to read and this was like a poem that was found in his cell um, so it says 
I sit here in my death cell, I know not why, for the evidence proved me innocent and that is no lie. Seven members of my family murdered to date. The jury on a guess would make it number eight. Was it planned that way or was it just fate? My lawyer's family threatened the same. What reason can there be for such a dirty game? The judge directed, pay no heed and reject that lead. Pay no heed to one another, pay no heed to the shirt and gun. Close your eyes, you need not see. Two places at once I could not be. So I ask you, is this strange that I am sentenced to the noose while my family's killer is on the loose? He wiped up his fingerprints, all traces of his crime, putting a stained suit under the mattress. No doubt he knew it was mine. His purpose clear to see murder of the missing member without fear of the fine. Time he would gain and safely would be. So I ask you, is it strange I am sentenced to the noose while my family's killer is on the loose? My family's funeral I wanted to attend. I had escaped and sealed my own fate in the end. I pray God told them of the hounds and the hare. They hounded me day by day. They hounded me by night. Bloodhounds and helicopters, oh, what a sight. Out to murder, armed and dangerous, they said. That is so funny. I'll laugh till I am dead. So I ask you, is it strange that I am sentenced to the noose while my family's killer is on the loose? I've heard of justice, but where can it be? I looked it in the dictionary. Behold, there it is to see. When I sent for my lawyer, he just shook his head. Justice will come long after you're dead. So you people of the world, take note. It's a murder when the innocent die at the end of the rope. And it says a poem by Robert Raymond Cook, awaiting execution, November 1960. I'm speechless right now. Because like I'm kind of like, did he do it? Or did they just kind of sentence him for death? Yeah, actually, there has been like several people to this day that are still unsure if he actually committed the crime. And there's actually been like speculation of another person, like a second involvement, because they found uh, like Robert's blue prison jumpsuit that he gave to his father stuffed under the mattresses. And on it, it said like Ross. And like there was also a white t-shirt that was found that said Ross on it. So people are like, don't know what that means. Please have no idea like what What Ross means. Yeah, like the connection there. And some people say that this wasn't fair as well because all the evidence they had against Robert was completely circumstantial. And police also can never link the shotgun that was used to murder his father to Robert. So the murder weapon that was used, they couldn't link to him either. So it almost kind of says like really the, it almost kind of seems like the evidence that they had was more of a, we believe it's you. And Mm -hmm. they didn't have anything really that could back it up. Yeah. And like this, like to this day, this is still one of the most talked about cases. You like can do your research yourself and there's like some debates on the topic. And like 92 year old, um, the McNaughton that I spoke about, he was part of a debate saying that he believes that Cook like didn't do it. And then there was another guy saying that he believes he did it and why. So no one knows whether or not he did do it, but he was the last man like sentenced to be um, like hung and was victim of cap- capital punishment, which is mind boggling. And on a brighter note, um, he, or Robert Raymond Cook ended up donating 
his like body parts to medical science, specifically his eyes to the Edmonton Eye Bank and his body to the University of Alberta Hospital. Which is nice. Yeah, that's nice. Mm, and it did say though that they don't know if the people who received his items or like his body parts know that, that it was, was from his. him. Yeah. Could you imagine? Just finding out later on. Yeah, so <laughs> Yeah. So that is the story of Robert Raymond Cook. My mind is just in shambles right now. <laughs> it's a pretty wild ride. There was a lot of information, a lot of dates, because he was like in a lot of prisons and stuff. Yeah. But um, yeah, did did he do it? Did he not do it? Like it's it's hard to say. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Zach's just mind boggled over here. He doesn't know what to think. <laughs> Anyways, guys, that is the episode this week. If you made it to the end, thank you so much for listening. Uh, just before we go, if you are really into true crime and you're looking for other podcasts to listen to, two other ones that Zach and I really enjoy listening to is Murder With My Husband. That's a really good one. As well as Not Always Polite, which is a good friend of mine, Celine. She has her own podcast, um, which is pretty much kind of like ours. It's a Canadian-based true crime podcast that kind of features lesser-known cases. So if you're in the so if you're looking for more podcasts to listen to in this realm, I highly recommend theirs. I thank you guys so much for listening. If you haven't already, please follow our Instagram at Murder in the North Podcast. And stay tuned next week for Zach's turn to tell us a story and for me to listen. And that will be released January 17th. We will see you all on Tuesday. Thanks again so much for listening. Stay safe.